want to talk to you just one more time from the book of Job. I'm not sure exactly how accurate this is, but these chapters that we have looked at these last few weeks, chapters 29, 30, and today, chapter 31, um, I'm calling the heart of Job. I, I feel that they reveal to us uh, the heart of the book of Job, and also Job himself and his own heart, and uh, the things that he valued, and the things that he regretted losing. And now we see Job and the things in chapter 31 that he is most concerned about. You know, significant days call for significant preparation. At least I have found that to be true, and I'm sure you have as well. <clears throat> Most all of us, well, I suppose except for uh, some of the younger people in the room, uh, most all of us remember Y2K, and um, what, a, what a day that was to be, and it was, it was talked about for years and years before we ever got there, and everybody expected all of the computers to melt down, and and everything was going to go offline, and I, I worked at a hospital at the time, and uh, it didn't matter that my shift was over, it didn't matter uh, that uh, uh, I would be getting overtime pay, they wanted me there, and uh, most of the people in my department were there. We had to, we had to stay over until past midnight uh, of, of January 1st, the year 2000, just to make sure uh, that everything didn't fall to pieces. And there was a lot of preparation. There was a lot of work done to be sure that we were ready for that day. You know what it's like to go on a trip. If you go on a trip, there is uh, preparation to be done, packing and, and things to take care of around your house to make sure uh, that everything is is uh, taken care of. If you are, if you happen to be moving, I don't know how many of you've ever moved, especially if you've ever moved a long distance. But uh, I'll tell you that is a chore. I've moved a number of times in my life, not just from one part of town to another part of town, but moved long distances, and that is a challenge and requires a lot of planning and a lot of preparation. When you're planning and preparing, something that can be of great help is a checklist. I, I still have time. Usually, Saturdays are a pretty significant day for me and fairly busy days. So most Saturdays, I make a checklist. I have a little notepad, and, and I write down all the things that need to be done. And uh, that's how I plan and, and go through my day, and it does give me a sense of, if not a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day, at least a sense of comfort, feeling like, well, I've, I've covered all my bases. I've gotten done the things that I need to do. Well, chapter 31 of the book of Job seems to me to be a checklist that Job has uh, compiled. Now, <clears throat> there are different directions that we could approach this chapter and look at it in, in context. But what I want to focus in on is particularly verse 14 
of chapter 31, this question that Job asks, what then shall I do when God rises up? What then shall I do when God rises up? The idea there is when God rises up in judgment, what shall I do? And what Job is saying throughout chapter 31 is that when God rises up in judgment and I stand before him, there are certain attitudes and behaviors that I dare not have characteristic of my life. If these attitudes or these behaviors characterize me as a person, then what will I do when God rises up? I dare not have these things in my life when I stand before God in judgment. And so this is his, his checklist. Uh, I'm going to come back, maybe, to the picture of the airplane. We'll, we'll maybe do that later. Um, so Job here is, is giving us his list. I cannot afford to stand before God to be examined if. And the first thing that he mentions is, if my life has been characterized by sexual impurity, if my life has been characterized by sexual impurity, I cannot afford to stand before God in judgment. We see this, first of all, in chapter 31 and verse 1, where Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin or a young lady with the idea is with the intention of lusting after her, to desire her? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? And Job is saying, I dare not have my life to be characterized by lust when God rises up in judgment. Again, skipping down to verse 9, he mentions this idea of sexual purity. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, in other words, I've watched for the, the man next door to leave when he goes out to take care of his day's responsibilities and I lay in wait watching for him to go and then I go in to his wife. And Job pronounces a curse upon himself if he does that. This is how seriously he feels about it. Verse 10, Then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. Have you ever wondered why sexual purity is something that the Bible considers to be so important? One of the reasons I believe is simply this, that it is a foundational sin. It is a foundation. In other words, it is a sin out of which all kinds of other sin can flow and grow from the idea of sexual impurity. But the, the more important aspect of our sexual purity and uh, the idea of a biblical marriage is that it is to mirror the kind of relationship that God wants with his people. You see, biblically, marriage is the union of two persons in such self-giving love that they share a name, 
They share their bodies, their possessions, their vocation, their common lives, their total selves is irrevocably linked with each other. And that is to be a reflection of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with his people. And one of the things that makes marriage unique along the lines of sexual purity or impurity is this. You see, one can share time, one can share possessions, one can share influence or friendship or work, almost anything else you can share with others without necessarily damaging the marriage relationship. But it is impossible for a married person to share his or her body with another without violating the covenant that has been established in marriage. Job says, if my life has been characterized by sexual impurity, what shall I do when God rises up? I dare not live a life characterized by this. He goes on to say, if my life has been characterized by hypocrisy and deceit, then what shall I do when God rises up? Notice chapter 31, verses 5 through 8. If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, a parenthetical statement then in verse 6, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step is turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Later on in the chapter, verses 33 through 34, he comes back again to this idea of hypocrisy and deceit. Verse 33, if I have concealed my transgressions as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart... Because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. Now this is very interesting because the original language here where in verse 33 it says as others do. uh, If I'm not mistaken the Hebrew says it refers to Adam. If I have concealed my transgressions as Adam. Now, the implication there is, you know, Adam can be a generic word for humanity or for mankind. But we can also draw a a relevant lesson from the behavior of Adam himself. When God came looking for Adam in the Garden of Eden and said, Adam, what have you done? Where are you? And Adam said, it was the woman you gave me. It was her fault. Everybody's passing the buck. You remember, I believe it was the writer of the Proverbs that says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but he that confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy. You see, friends, there is a a value in transparent honesty that you cannot find anywhere else. And I'm not necessarily saying you need to put everything on display for the whole world to to see and hear. You can go too far. But I have found one thing to be true. 
sin in a person's heart is like a fungus. As long as it has a damp, dark place to hide, it will not ever go away. But it will continue to thrive there. It might go underground, it might hide itself for a while, it might be something that nobody else in your life, not even the closest people in your life know about. But if it stays hidden, people, I want to tell you, I have learned if there gets to be an area in my life that I'm just leaning in the direction of secrecy about, I know right away I need to find someone, I need to go to someone and be honest with them and also be honest with God. You say, preacher, isn't it, you know, isn't it good enough just to be honest with God? Sometimes it is. <clears throat> but it's also good to be honest with somebody else that you can trust, to be transparent, to say, listen, this is, this is what I'm struggling with. And Job says, if my life has been characterized by hypocrisy and deceit rather than open, honest confession of my faults and of my struggles, I have kept things hidden down inside. If that is the truth about me, then I dare not face God on judgment day. What will I do when God rises up if my life has been characterized by hypocrisy and deceit? Again, I would mention, similar to sexual impurity, almost all of these sins and and attitudes and behaviors on Job's list are, many of them are foundational sins, meaning that they are sins from which other sins grow. Job goes on to say, I dare not face God on judgment day if my life has been characterized by injustice. If my life has been characterized by injustice. Notice chapter 31, verses 13 through 15. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? It's interesting to note how much the Bible emphasizes that God cares about the needs of those who cannot care for themselves. In the Old Testament days and even in the New Testament, the the needs of the orphan and the widow are emphasized. But I think we can broaden that simply to mean those people that are not able to do for themselves. And sometimes, I know we mentioned earlier in prayer time, praying for the homeless. And and I've got to be honest with you and tell you this is a, a struggle in my own heart and life because I've heard the stories and you've heard the stories about the people who go out and stand somewhere at an intersection and beg for spare change or whatever and then they they go out and back behind around a building is a nice car and they get in their nice car and then drive away. I've heard those stories. I don't know. You may have heard some of those stories too. And they say, Pastor, they 
they need to get busy. They need to get a job. They need to go to work. Well, in some cases, that may be true. That may be true. But friends, could we just say that it would be a whole lot better to err on the side of mercy and love and grace and maybe every once in a while give something or do something for somebody who really doesn't deserve it than to not ever do anything for anyone. May God help us. If our life has been characterized by injustice, may God help us when we stand before him on judgment day. Job goes on to say, What shall I do when God rises up if my life has been characterized by selfishness? By selfishness. Chapter 31, verse 16 through 23. If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. Another few verses where he mentions the same idea again, verses 31 and 32. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? Or if the sojourner has not lodged in the street, I have opened my doors to the traveler. In other words, if I have been selfish with what I have and kept the blessings of God simply for myself, what shall I do when God rises up? Again, Job is concerned about standing before God on judgment day if his life has been characterized by idolatry, by idolatry. Notice verses 24 through 28. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, that's a, a reference to worship or, or reverence of the heavenly bodies and, and astrology, things that would have been common back in Job's day. This also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. The idea is simply an idea of, of uh, idolatry, either making gold and possessions your God or worshiping some other false or, or foreign God. And people, we've all been around long enough to know anything can become an idol. Anything that takes the place of God in our lives is to us an idol. Moving on, again, Job says, If my life has been characterized by unforgiveness, I dare not face God on judgment day. Verses 29 and 30. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook him, 
I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If those who have wronged me, Job says, if I have failed uh, to forgive them or if I have uh, breathed curses and threatenings against them, then I dare not stand before God on Judgment Day. Many of these ideas we could spend time developing further. Um, I think one of the most dangerous things in the world to a Christian is unforgiveness, an unforgiving heart. You see, when we harbor unforgiveness in our heart, we break down the very bridge that we ourselves must cross to get to heaven. Moving on, again, Job says, if my life has been characterized by careless stewardship, careless stewardship, I dare not face God on judgment day. What shall I do when God rises up? Verses 38 through 40, the last part of the chapter. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, then let thorns grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. In other words, Job is recognizing the idea that what we have in our possession is not simply ours to use up for ourselves, but it is given to us in trust. It is given to us as stewards. And we are to be responsible with what God has given to us, both for ourselves and for our families, but also to do something with it, to multiply it. I hear echoes in the back of my mind of the story that Jesus told about the men with the talents. And you remember the master was going away on a trip, and to one uh, he gave so many talents, five talents I believe it was, and to another two or three, and then to one he only gave one talent. And you remember the first two men, they went out and they did something with what they were given, and when the master came back and they were to give an account, these men had doubled what they were given. And they were blessed because of it. But the man that uh, had been only given one talent, he didn't know his master very well. He said, I, I knew, really I think we can say I believed. I thought you were a hard man. Reaping where you have not sown, and so on and so forth. So when I saw you only gave me one talent, I took what you gave me and I hid it away, and here you have back just, just what you entrusted me with. Job says, if my life has been characterized by careless stewardship, I dare not face God in judgment. Now, how many of us is that? Have, has anybody been keeping count? Keeping track, is that about seven or eight? Seven, thank you. I'm sure this is not an exhaustive list. I'm sure we could think of numbers of other things that we could add to this list. But you see, the nature of lists is to help us feel 
reassured and in control. When I was studying this chapter, quite honestly, I was kind of mulling this over and thinking, how, you know, how do we really make application to us as Christians? Because you could, we could take a chapter like this and a message like this and say, well, do kind of what we're doing, turn it into a checklist. And as long as we can tick off the list, check, 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 say, okay, I'm good. I can comfortably stand before God on judgment day. That is the nature of lists. Let me see if I can real quick go back to the airplane. There we go. The year is 1935, and the U.S. Army Air Corps had come up with a competition of uh, airplane manufacturers, between different airplane manufacturers, vying to secure a contract to build the military's next long-range bomber. Boeing Aircraft unveiled their state-of-the-art airplane, which originally was named the B-299, later became known as the B-17 Flying Fortress, which, to its credit, is, my understanding, largely responsible for giving uh, the Allies the victory in World War II. It was a stunning design, a marvel of, of engineering, and everything was in perfect working order. The test pilots were experienced and well-trained, and as they began their inaugural flight, they added power for takeoff, and they became airborne, and then abruptly crashed after climbing only a few hundred feet. The first flight of the B-17 bomber. The crash was not caused by a design flaw, but rather by pilot error. You see, while the new bomber could fly faster and farther than any other before that, it was much more complex to operate. There were a lot more steps involved. There were four engines to keep track of, wing flaps and landing gear and much, much more. And so preoccupied with all of the different uh, activities that the pilots had to go through in order to successfully uh, fly the airplane, they forgot one thing. There was a mechanism that, w- that needed to be disengaged. And so instead of, uh, of uh, successfully flying because of forgetting one thing, the airplane went up just a few hundred feet, then crashed. Some of those on board were severely injured, and if I remember correctly, some of them later died because of that crash. The result of this was, rather than making pilots undergo further complex training, Boeing came up with a simple yet ingenious solution, and it was the first pilot's checklist. Now, if you know anything about aviation or are familiar at all uh, with flying pilots, all pilots have a pre-flight checklist, and they, it's just a matter of course, and they go, if they're doing what they're supposed to do, they go through everything on their checklist and check it off and check it off and check, 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 and when they come down to the end of their checklist, they can comfortably 
sit down in, their, in, their, in the cockpit, in the pilot's seat, and fly that airplane knowing that they've taken care of everything that, uh, that needs to be covered. Now, let me see if I can quickly get back to where I want to be. I had my slides out of order. So it is the nature of list to help us feel reassured and in control. However, if you look closely at Job's list, you'll see that it, at least it wouldn't help me feel reassured and in control. Because there are items on that list that I know I'm not capable of in myself. I believe this is the way the law is intended to work. If you want to be a Christian, you want to learn about God's grace, some have recommended simply start with the Ten Commandments and start trying to conscientiously keep them, live them out day by day. For the average person, it won't be very long before you find how desperately you are in need of God's grace and help. And I believe this is what Job had in mind when he was talking about his list, going through his list, and all of the things that he said, I dare not have my life characterized by hypocrisy and deceit, by sexual immorality, or, or by selfishness, or careless stewardship, all of these things on this list. And when I look at it, it makes me realize how much I need God's grace, and it moves me to seek Him. Job was confident in his integrity, but I believe Job, Job still had some lessons to learn at this point, don't get me wrong, but I also believe that Job knew something about relying on God and relying on God's grace. Yes, friends, there are attitudes and their behaviors that we dare not have characterize our lives when we stand before God on judgment day. But neither can we approach life or approach judgment day with the checklist mentality feeling like I've got all the bases covered because I've ticked off all of the boxes and I've checked off the list. No, friends, we need God's grace. Amen. Let's stand together, please.